I've never been much of a reader of fiction until lately. In fact, in my wife and I's first year of marriage, she wanted us to read fiction out loud together. And so we chose Charles Dickens, I forget which one it was. And it, it led to our first, or one of our first big marital fights. Because she started reading, and instantly my, wife, my brain went boring, boring. And about halfway through the page, she said, all right, Toph, what's, what's happening so far? And I just had a blank stare. But recently, I have been jumping into fiction. And uh, my wife recommended Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, we had it on our shelf, and, and it's had a big impact on me. This is the classic by Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's an anti-slavery novel that was a runaway bestseller. There are times where this was the second most sold book right underneath the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said this to the author. He said, so you're the little woman who, little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. So it had such an impact against the institution of slavery that he, he said it started the Civil War. Part of its power is it's a vivid picture of slavery, and it really helps you feel the absolute hopelessness of the slaves. The absolute hopelessness. Despair is a powerful thing. In the book, a mother is sold separately from her daughter at a slave auction. Another mother killed her own baby so that it wouldn't have to endure the same life that she endured. Despair makes us do things that we would think would be unimaginable in our more hopeful moments. The same could be said about the power of hope. Hope can empower us with love and joy even when we're in the deepest of pits. Uncle Tom, who's the hero of the story, is a strong Christian man. He's a slave. He's taken from his family. He lost his chance at freedom twice. He's now living at a ruthless plantation where the master is, is beating him within an inch of his life. And yet he's remaining firm in the faith. However, it got so bad for Uncle Tom that he got to a point where he was on the brink of unbelief. Despair had finally start, started to creep into his soul. But then, remarkably, God gives him this verse, Revelation 3.21, which says, The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Instantly, hope filled the heart of Tom. He was a changed man from that moment. He was so changed that this is what the author says. From this time, an absolute peace encompassed the lowly heart of Tom. So near, so vivid, seemed eternal blessedness 
that life's worst suffering fell from him, able to do no harm. All noticed the change in his appearance. Cheerfulness and alertness seemed to return to him. And a quietness which no insult or injury could ruffle seemed to possess him. So Tom went on in that moment after having received so much affliction, after almost being broken by despair, God gives him hope and he begins serving the other slaves in love. He picks a lot more cotton so that he can share it with other slaves who can't pick enough cotton for the daily quota. And they would get whipped if they didn't do that. He would protect other slave women. He refused retaliation. So hope empowered Tom to love, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are called to in 2 Thessalonians. We are called to put our hope in the return of Jesus while persevering in good works. Put your hope in Jesus, in the return of Jesus, while persevering in good works. Little background, 2 Thessalonians was written very shortly after 1 Thessalonians. So you'll remember Paul had visited Thessalonica. He didn't spend a lot of time there because of the persecution, he and, he and his companions left pretty quickly, and so then he wrote them 1 Thessalonians not, not too long after. And then it wasn't but a couple months, and then he already was writing 2 Thessalonians. And the reason was, this poor church that was born in affliction had a fresh outbreak of persecution. So they were, they were being afflicted deeply once again. Now, such persistent persecution would make anyone weary, right? We've all been through afflictions that just tire our souls. We're weary. We don't want to keep going. It's too heavy. Will this threaten the hope of the Thessalonians? Another reason, another reason why Paul wrote is because of false teaching. False teaching threatened the hope of the Thessalonians, essentially, there is false teaching circulating that said, you know what? The day of the Lord has already come. So your hope in God's saving ability at Christ's return has already passed. So they weren't sure if they were going to meet the wrath of God or not. They thought they missed the big opportunity to be saved. So you can imagine their hopelessness, their struggle with hope. And yet Paul writes to them to put their hope in the return of Jesus while persevering in good works. And then we'll see in chapter 3, this is to happen under the authority of a local church. So this is the main point of the sermon, if you're taking notes. Put your hope in the return of Jesus while persevering in good works under the authority of a local church. Let's look at chapter 1. A fresh outbreak of persecution threatened hope. And like he did in his first letter, Paul begins with thanksgiving and prayer. Look at there in chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God... 
for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So all those prayers we saw that Paul prayed for this church in the first epistle, God has been answering because their faith continues to go strong. So we already at the beginning of this book see the faithfulness of God on display in this church. He began a good work in them and he will continue. And then what he does is he gives us a preview of Jesus' glorious return in verses 5 through 10. Look at verses 5 through 10. Now, if you see movie trailers, which I love movie trailers, I love previews. Jeff and I went to a movie Friday night, and, a, and we got there 45 minutes early just to make sure I didn't miss the previews. They didn't, they didn't even open the corridor to go in yet, but we were there. Well, what is it that's amazing about previews is they arrest your attention. They create anticipation. There's such vivid pictures of, of battles and, and scenes that grip your attention that it creates anticipation, right? So if you've, if you've seen a good trailer, there's not boring dialogue. What are you going to do? I don't know. No one's going to want to see that movie. However, if you've seen, Ben, you'll appreciate this, if you've seen Top Gun, the new uh, the new preview for Top Gun Maverick, that thing is awesome. Now, I don't know about the cheesy plot line, but when I saw those jets, I was like, oh, man, when does this come out? I want to see this. It gripped me. It arrested my attention so that I wanted to look forward to it. And I can tell you it comes out June 26 because this trailer did its work. It created anticipation in my heart. Now that's exactly what Paul is doing in his language here. Paul could have just said, hey guys, I know you're discouraged, but buck up, God will make it all right. He doesn't do that. Listen to the language he uses that's meant to draw us in, that's meant to create anticipation for, for a reality that is beyond imagination. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict, afflict you. And to grant relief to you when you are afflicted as well as to us. Now listen to this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is meant to grip our souls. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might so if you have any doubts that God will one day not bring justice this verse is meant to blow that out of the water and then listen to what awaits us as believers away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at 
among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Christ's second coming will be so glorious, the word that Paul chooses is marvel. We will marvel at the beauty and the power of our Savior to redeem. So at the same day, on that day, he will bring judgment and salvation, glorious salvation. So Paul wants us to preview the return of Jesus in all of its glory in order to pierce through the weariness of affliction in our lives and give us great hope. It's so easy for affliction to create a fog in our souls so that we don't see what we're called to. Well, this verse and these verses are meant to pierce through that to see glory. Now, what's the response? Let's look at verses 11 through 12. What, what is the proper response we should have when we are filled with hope? The response is to pursue and pray for God's power in our life through good works. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that verse because it says that my will is not near good enough to follow Jesus. I need the power of God in order to live a holy life. I remember I went into Baker's Wife. If you don't know what Baker's Wife is, it's a donut shop. And I went on like January 2nd or 3rd. It was a Saturday morning and no one was in there. Usually it's packed. And I said, well, what's up? Why aren't people getting donuts? She said, oh, New Year's resolutions. But two weeks, everyone will be back. That's how our resolves operate apart from the power of God. God is the one who fulfills our every resolve for good. We are dependent on his grace alone. Otherwise, we will keep eating donuts and we won't stop. God is making us. Now look at this. What does it mean when it says that God is making us worthy of his calling? Does that mean that God is so making us righteous so that that one day finally will be acceptable to God? No. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. In Christ alone. What he is saying, though, is God wants to make us beautiful as the bride of Christ. He wants us to be ready for that day so that we might look stunning as we dress ourselves in good works. Now, think of when I saw my beautiful wife coming down the aisle... She was wearing sweats and a tank top. Would that be fitting? Would that, would that honor me as a husband? No. Now, it doesn't mean that, okay, now you, now you can't earn my marriage because you didn't dress that way, but it just wouldn't be fitting. And so that's what Paul's getting at here when he says make worthy of the calling to which they've had. We, we want to be so dressed in works that glorify Jesus that it will be fitting one day when we are drawn into his presence as his beautiful bride. We want to look fit for our heavenly husband. Now, this should happen even in affliction. 
So you think it would have been easy for the Thessalonians at this point to say, you know what, I'm going to turn inward and just kind of lick my wounds. The church at Colossae isn't going through all this. The church in Rome isn't so afflicted. Why do we have to be so afflicted? I'm just going to turn inward in my holy huddle and not think about other people. But Paul says, no, even in affliction, hope empowers us to love other people. And so Paul prays that they would be made worthy through every work of faith by his power. So put your hope in the return of Jesus while persevering in good works under the authority of a local church. Now, let's, let's turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Not only did persecution cause a threat to hope, but false teaching did as well. Again, they thought the day of the Lord had already come, and they, they looked at that day as, as the time when Jesus would deliver them from the wrath of God. So if that day had already come, where was their hope? Starting in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. One thing to note there is they were shaken in mind. They were alarmed. This false teaching was having an effect in their soul. Paul goes on, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, at this point, you might pause and say, all right, nerd alert, you're getting way too deep into prophecy right here. Man of lawlessness, and then the restraining mystery will come, and and all this stuff that just seems like it belongs in a prophecy conference. And yet, Paul says this is necessary for their hope. Biblical teaching about the return of Jesus is not just an academic exercise. It's meant to give them hope. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then here again, we have some of that apocalyptic language that's meant to help us not only see but feel the return of Jesus. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Just a breath of his mouth, his word, will demolish the enemies of God and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned 
who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in, righteous, in unrighteousness. Now, there is a lot you can say about this passage. Lou promises he will reveal to us who the man of lawlessness is. Right, Lou? <laughs> but what I want us to recognize here is that Paul does not help the Thessalonians by giving them a vague hope. He doesn't say, you know what, God, God will work it all out in the end. I don't know what's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Just hope in God. No, he gives him specific biblical teaching about the return of Jesus. Apparently, that was necessary as a pastor for him to do that. So when we go to Sunday school classes, when we seek to be good students of the Bible, it's not just about being academic. It's about firming up our hope in the return of Jesus. And it comes through specific, guided, biblical teaching. And you see Paul doing that here. He could have, he could have made this a lot shorter and just said, look, don't worry about it. Christ is going to come back. And yet he gives a detailed account of some of the things that will happen at the end times because those are important, not just for prophecy charts, but for our souls. And so we can learn from this. We need specific teaching about Jesus' return to have hope. Now again, what does Paul do with this hope? Once Once he encourages them with this hope about how Christ will come back, he again points to good works. Look at, look at verse 13 in chapter 2. But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. There we see it's God's initiation in the salvation of the Thessalonians. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So it's by faith alone. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will share glory with Christ when he comes back. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So again, Paul encourages the church that's now hope-filled because of the teaching they just received and says the response to that is to pursue good works, to make yourself ready for Jesus, to make yourself a beautiful bride. As, As Lou said, that day needs to impact this day. A book I'm reading about these things says the basic fact about the present life is that it is important and valuable in all its aspects because it leads to the world to come. So this vision of Jesus that Paul is imprinting on our minds so vividly is meant to be a compass every day to help us determine what, what, sh- what should my life look like today? What should drive my decisions It's being beautiful for Christ when he comes back, being a beautiful bride. Now, what you hope in will always change how you live. We've talked about this, right? What you hope in will always change how you live. My daughter and wife went to Texas 
this last week, and, um, and my daughters were super excited. It's so fun to see how excited they get. So as soon as they learned that they were going to go to Texas, Adelaide started planning right away. She started getting her outfits ready. She made this little planner, and on every page she drew a picture of how they were going to get to the airport, and then you make a check. And then once they're in the airport, when we got that done, make a check. And then when you get on the plane, she drew another picture, check. She wanted a checklist in anticipation of going on that trip. So, did hope affect my daughter's behavior? Absolutely. Because she had such hope in this trip, she was getting ready. She, she couldn't wait until this came. And it affected her daily life beforehand. The same should be true of the return of Jesus in our lives. It should so impact our souls that whether it's a small mundane thing or something weighty, we should do it in light of Christ's return. Put your hope in the return of Jesus while persevering in good works under the authority of a local church. And we'll look at the authority of a local church. Let's look at chapter 3. What we see here in chapter 3 is the authority of a local church preserves good works. The authority of a local church preserves good works. In other words, you will not be ready for the return of Jesus as you ought without fruitful participation in a local church. Without fruitful participation in a local church. The crucial role the structure of a local church plays in preparing for Jesus' return is seen vividly in this chapter. Now, one thing to know before I read these verses is that in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he used the verb for encourage a lot. And in 2 Thessalonians, he switches the verb to command. So apparently they weren't, they weren't responding to just encouragement. And at this point, Paul has to use his authority as an apostle to give commands. And that's not an unloving thing to do. L- listen to what, listen to how the local church plays such a key role in, in the preparation to meet Jesus. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have this confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now, the first thing to recognize there is Paul is ultimately looking to God to bring about the good work in this church. Do you see it there? The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. We have confidence in who? In the Lord about you. So Paul prays again that God would direct their hearts to the love of God. 
and steadfastness of Christ. But that doesn't mean he doesn't then go and give commandments. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now that doesn't sound very loving to our modern ears, does it? Keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in our an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. You're not busy at work, you're busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Remember where Paul had already addressed that in the first letter? Apparently it wasn't getting through. And so th- this was a, a place of rebuke. And then he goes on to say, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Again, does that sound loving to our modern ears? Making someone feel ashamed? Paul says this is a crucial aspect of love. This is what love looks like. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do you see the love there? This, this isn't inflicting vengeance on someone. This is going to a brother and doing all you can to plead with them not to go in the way of destruction. In light of Christ's return, he will come back as judge and savior. I want you to be ready. So Paul is using his authority in a stronger way here than he did in 1 Thessalonians. Because authority and the exercise of authority is not a bad thing. I think in our, in our modern sensibilities, it feels like a bad thing because we've seen authoritarian type of leadership, and that is wrong. But we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, well, any type of authority is therefore bad. Authority is a gift from God for our protection in the church. And it's not only the apostle who's exercising this authority, but who's the main one's exercising authority in these verses. It's the church. Paul is, Paul is writing to the church when he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. He's writing to the collective body. And so as members, we all have an authority to remove someone from our membership if it gets to that point. And that's not an unloving thing. That's the most loving thing we can do if someone's sin warrants it. Now here, Paul had commanded them not to be idle. He'd instructed that them the first time they didn't listen. 
Well, he didn't throw them out then, but then he wrote a letter and said, look, you've been idle. You need to stop. You need, you need to be serious about obeying these commands. And apparently they still weren't doing it. So after persistent pursuit is when Paul is saying, look, out of love, if these men and women don't change how they're walking, it behooves you, you, it, you as the church, before God, need to exercise your authority and remove this person from the congregation that they might be ready for the return of Christ. And that's what love looks like, according to Paul. So authority is not a dirty word. Exercising authority is not unloving. It is God's gift of love for our protection in light of Jesus' return. Now, we need the authority structures of a local church to persevere in good works while we hope for the return of Jesus. It's easy. I've thought this way before that, man, if I could just live my Christian life by myself, it would be a lot easier. You guys have different convictions than me in some areas. You guys do church different than me in some ways. It'd be a lot easier not to be a part of a church for any long amount of time. This church isn't doing this or it's not doing that. However, the church is like a ship. The church is like a ship. A ship gets you across an ocean, right? Without a ship, you're not going to be able to go through waves. You're not going to be able to have storms buffet against you and, and, and be okay. In this life, we have waves of sin, Satan, and suffering. We're, we're crossing an ocean. You think about, um, you think about um, what's the best-selling book underneath the Bible? Pilgrim's Progress. The final, the final challenge he has is to, is to get through the water to the celestial shore. Well, all of us are going through the ocean of this life. There's waves of sin, Satan, and suffering that are crashing against the ship. Now, it's not always easy to like the ship that you're on. The ship is the church intended to protect us. But you might say, this ship is so restrictive. I don't want to help put the sails up. I want to, it, it, looks, it looks calm out. I, I'm tired of serving. Or I don't like how the crew of this ship does things. Submitting to the leadership, I could do things a lot better. Or the other people in my cabin are annoying. I just want to get away from them. be a lot easier not to be around these people. So I'm going to take a canoe and chart my own course to the celestial shore. Well, that might be fine when there's no affliction and there's no waves. You feel, oh, this is freedom. I'm going after Christ now all alone. No encumbrances. And then a storm comes and you're sunk in affliction. So even though staying in a church can be hard, that's God's intended way to protect us as we wait for the return of Jesus. So put your hope in the return of Jesus while persevering in good works under the authority and accountability of a local church. Now we're going to turn to the table now. And one thing I want you to recognize 
is in the first verse. Turn to the beginning of the book. And we have to remind ourselves what all of these things are ultimately built upon. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. He starts every epistle that way. Grace to you. And now look at the very last word, or the last verse of the book in in 3.18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. From beginning to end, Paul wants us to only be in the context of God's grace. What is grace? It's God's unsought, unbought, and unmerited favor. It's only by God's grace, which he bought through his son, that empowers the life that Paul is calling us to. The word for grace is actually a word play in the Greek. In normal Greek epistles, they would, they would begin their letter with hello, which was karain, and Christians changed it to charis, which means grace, because grace is what defines us as a church. We are those who've been saved by the grace of God. So, this is a standard greeting for Paul, grace be with you. However, it's not an empty formula. Paul wants us to learn that we owe everything Solely to God's grace and by that grace alone. So as we come to the table this morning, remember that everything I've talked about, everything we see in 2 Thessalonians cannot properly be understood apart from the free, unmerited grace, which we're going to celebrate because Christ bought it for us.